1: News, weather, traffic,
2: money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening
3: right now. This is Mornings with Simi. A big change in cancer screening that was announced in the U.S. this week, and a lot of women here in Canada are wondering if this means changes for us too. So a U.S. panel is now advising women of all backgrounds with an average risk of cancer to actually begin regular mammogram screenings at the age of 40. Now, before that, they were saying 50 and also treating it as like a personal choice. Well, now here in BC, it is available for women at 40. But I wonder if women even know what the rules really are here. Like until you get that letter or until your doctor says something to you, do women here know that they can actually ask for a mammogram? Well, let's find out what the rules are here. Dr. Paula Gordon is with us, a breast radiologist in Vancouver and clinical professor at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Gordon, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you. So what are the rules here in BC for women if they want a mammogram?
2: Women in British Columbia can self-refer. That means they don't need a doctor's requisition for regular screening mammography starting at age 40. There is a Canadian panel similar to to the one that just made the change in their guidelines in the U.S. But you you must realize that even in the U.S. they don't follow that particular panel's guidelines. Uh, When their last set came out before this one, uh, Congress passed a moratorium so that, in effect, women have been able to be screened at age 40 and have their insurance cover in the United States for years and years. In Canada, our panel said the same thing, that women shouldn't routinely get screened uh, in their 40s. But the messaging was really confusing, and in fact, four provinces ignored the panel, like British Columbia, thankfully, and said women can get screened starting at forty.
3: Okay, so all we have to do is ask?
2: All we have to do is phone and make an
3: appointment. And um,
2: I'm so glad you're covering this, because even though that's the rule, as you call it, um, only 25% of eligible women are having those mammograms. Now, in your intro, you said something about getting a letter. Our screening program used to send letters to women, uh, inviting them yeah, to come for I used a mammogram, to get letting them know they were eligible, but they haven't done that for many years.
3: I get a reminder and, letter. That's like I get the so, reminder ah, letter. You're... Once
2: you've attended, yes, once you have attended the first time. But if women don't know that they can, they don't get a letter telling them. And sadly, uh, many family doctors don't even tell their patients because our family doctors are often following those confusing guidelines and not only not telling women they can go, sometimes discouraging the women who do want to go.
3: Okay, so, so for, preference would be then, Dr. Gordon, for a woman over the age of 40 to, be, to not say, should I, to say, I'm going to.
2: Yes, but it's fair enough that she should understand the benefits of having those mammograms, and the risks. And that's what these task forces are overemphasizing. So, for example, the thing they're most concerned about, the thing they're calling a risk of having a mammogram, is that there might be something on the mammogram that needs more attention. We need to call the patient back and take some extra pictures. We call those recalls. They call them false positives, which is a little bit misleading. But it's the vast majority of women who get called back will end up being told you don't have cancer. Now, while they're waiting for those extra tests to be done, of course, it's a little nerve-wracking, but that anxiety is transient, and once the extra tests are done and they find out they don't have cancer, that anxiety... Uh, has been shown to not cause long-term harm.
3: Okay, I've had that happen to me actually. <laughs> and, well, and women are used to that. Yeah, and there's another test? Yeah, yeah it all I was told was, "Oh, listen, we just need to get a clearer picture of this." That's all. And I was like, "Okay, that's fine." So I went back and had another one done. And yeah, you you wonder, "Oh, did they see something?" But it's so efficient. The system I think does a good job of reassuring you.
2: And and when women get called back, Um, You know, we are going to take all the pictures we need. Sometimes they need an ultrasound. In a very small proportion of women that get called back, we actually have to do a procedure called a needle biopsy, which is done with freezing. It's no more uh, uh, uncomfortable for most women than having a regular blood test from the arm. And if that, you know, for the small small proportion of people who need that test, that's the ultimate is it cancer or not. Now, our panel is saying, well, we shouldn't even screen because of the risk of being recalled. But if you don't have that screening test, you might be missing the opportunity to find an early cancer. And that's when we want to find them. If they're going to happen, we want to find them early.
3: Is it challenging as well for someone like you, Dr. Gordon, when when these stories do come out, right, where all of a sudden you're going to get questions about, well, wait a minute, what does this mean? And what does this mean for the larger system?
2: Well, you know, science is evolving. It's, that, that happens. But what people don't realize, and even family doctors, nurse practitioners don't realize, is the panel that makes the guidelines has no breast cancer experts on it. And that's a real shocker for people to hear. The panel that's making the guidelines on breast cancer screening has no breast cancer experts, no surgeons, oncologists, pathologists, or radiologists.
3: That doesn't make sense.
2: Well, they claim... They claim that it 's necessary to do it that way to eliminate bias they're they 're accusing people like me who are experts of being so conflicted by wanting to earn more money that we 're going to recommend a test that isn 't beneficial and what they, you know what they don 't take into account is that um, specialists start their careers with waiting lists we're not, we, we don 't want more people to come we would we would like Less people to come for the test because the wait lists are too long, but if if the test is valuable, we want women to have it and People who practice breast radiology or breast surgery, they see the consequences of a late diagnosis. Women who have an early breast cancer can have a smaller operation on their breast, not need a mastectomy where they take the breast off, and they can avoid chemotherapy so early diagnosis leads to better quality of life, even for the people who end up having cancer.
3: So across Canada then, is it different depending on what province you live in? Exactly. So there are only four provinces
2: that let women have screening starting at 40, and BC happily is one of them. My colleagues who work in the other provinces see far more advanced cancers in young women than I do. And, and even research by Statistics Canada shows that in provinces that don't screen until 50, not only do they see more advanced cancers, obviously, in women in their 40s because they're not getting screened, they even see more advanced cancers in women in their 50s because by not finding them in the 40s, they get bigger and have potentially spread even before women can have their first mammogram. Hmm.
3: So, Dr. Gordon, how would you rate the system here in BC then?
2: We're doing pretty well uh, by offering screening for women in their 40s. BC was also the first province to tell women whether they have dense breasts on their screening mammogram report. And we do offer supplemental ultrasound screening for women with dense breasts to help find some of the cancers that might be missed on their mammograms. Where we could do better is, is offering those mammograms annually starting at 40. Um, Right now, the only women who can come every year are those who have a family history of breast cancer in a mother, sister, or daughter. And we could do better by sending those letters telling women that they're eligible. Okay. And we could also extend that screening, annual screening, until a woman goes through menopause, because premenopausal women's cancers grow faster than once a woman's gone through menopause.
3: Okay, this is a lot for a woman to think about then. If you're over oh, the know. age of 40, I, <laughs> if you're over the age of 40, though, and you haven't done this, do it, right? Just do it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for encouraging women. Well, thank you for joining us this morning. We appreciate your time. Have a great day. That's Dr. Paula Gordon, breast radiologist in Vancouver and clinical professor at the University of British Columbia. Now, talking about kind of the BC advice versus what we heard, you know, saw lots of headlines about this, this US panel that is now advising women of all backgrounds with an average risk of breast cancer to begin regular mammogram screenings at the age of 40. And here in BC, you can already do that. The problem is a lot of women don't know they can already do that. You don't need to get, you know, call your doctor, you don't Need to make an appointment with a doctor, you can have to just call the mammogram center and, and make an appointment right there. If you're over the age of 40, it can be done. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, how strict are you about the food that you eat? As in, do you eat Organic? Maybe you avoid genetically modified foods, or these days, really, when you think about the prices, maybe it's just about whatever is cheapest and available, right? So the federal government has announced some changes in seed guidelines. So some seeds can now be gene-edited to grow plants rather than genetically modifying the plants. Now, for organic farmers, this means they have concerns about this. Like, will a farmer know which seeds have been edited? And what does all of this mean for consumers, right? So we had a chance to talk to Marie-Claude Bibaud, who is Canada's Minister of Agriculture and Agri-Food, about what these new rules are. And here is some of what we learned.
0: Well, uh, GMOs, what we all know as GMO, is still under a very... Uh, mandatory and strict regulation, and it has to go through uh, a process with Health Canada and, and CFI, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. But now with uh, all the new innovation, the incredible innovation we see in agriculture, we now, t- now have what we call gen editing or precision breeding, uh, and it is actually having the capacity to do in a laboratory what we do conventionally, conventionally, uh, for decades uh, in in the field. So now we can um, strengthen uh, the seeds, for example, to make them more resilient to drought, more resilient to to a pest, for example. So then, it would mean. Um, having this capacity to, to produce even in, in the case of uh, a dry environment or not having the same need in terms of pesticides. So there are a lot of good, um, good things around this gen editing or this, uh, precision breeding innovation. Mm-hmm. And we have recently, um, uh, issued uh, some clarification around it to make the difference between GMOs. And any other type of gene um, manipulation that would uh, include a foreign DNA or include a new trait uh, that might pose a risk to the environment. So when we are talking about gene editing, which we could have done in the field in a very conventional manner, but now we can do it more precisely and faster in the laboratory, this is it doesn't have to go through the, the big health process, but um, my commitment to the organic sector was to uh, move forward with this innovation, but by making sure we would protect the uh, integrity of the organic certification, which is obviously very important for them in terms of their international uh, trade.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so the, what is new, and actually I'm just coming back from Washington, and I can tell you that other countries are very interested in, in our approach we will have uh, a database uh, that will be uh, made mandatory by the industry. It will be managed by the industry, but we will have a steering committee uh, with members from the industry, the seed industry, but also from the organic sector, from CFI, from my Department of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. So they will follow up on this database to make sure that it is reliable, it is public and easily accessible, that is always updated. And over and above, we will have governmental oversight to make sure that this database is reliable. So uh, I think we're getting uh, the best so we can make use of this innovation Mm -hmm. while protecting uh, organic certifications.
3: So will the seeds then be labeled so organic farmers will know? Because I understand the database is voluntary at this point, is it not?
0: It is. Well, actually, the industry will make it mandatory because um, they, they have been working closely with the organic sector on this path, uh, and it's a matter of transparency. Uh, it's not a food safety issue. I just want to make me be clear. It's not a food safety issue. It's a worry around the uh, integrity of a certification. So I'm strongly convinced, and I, having had conversation with my international colleagues uh, this earlier this week, Our approach with this database, that will be made mandatory, yes, by the industry, but with an oversight by the government and having the organic sector on the steering committee as well. It will be a reliable database so farmers will be able to know if the seed has been generated or not.
3: Okay, because I know, so there won't be any labeling requirements though, right? So consumers won't be able to know which like the food that they're eating, whether that came from seeds that were gene edited or not. So it, it ends essentially once the food is grown.
0: Yeah, well, I'm talking about seeds right now, not, yes. not food. Right. But so that's... the importance is for the organic sector to know where if their seed has been genetically or GMO or organic or conventional, conventional. So, okay. so they will have the capacity to know that.
3: Okay, so you feel that organic farmers will be protected here?
0: Absolutely. And once again, having talked to my uh, international uh, trading partners this week in Washington, um, I think we are offering our organic sector more transparency than other countries. And uh, they, they were very interested in, the, in our approach. Interesting. Okay, so when does all this come into effect? Well, the database already exists, but it's not as strong as we want it to be. So they are working on making it more um, extensive, so making sure that the method of production of the seed is in there. Um, So they are working, uh, Seed Canada is working on the database now, uh, and and we don't have any gen-edited seeds on the market yet. So the database will be ready for... Uh, When Gen edited um, seeds uh, will be available on the market.
3: Okay, and you mentioned that this is, you know, we are in kind of lockstep with other countries. So, other countries are the rules similar? Then, say in the United States or in the European Union.
0: Actually, in the United States, they don't have the transparency we are offering to our uh, organic sector. Um, In the EU, they they have a stronger approach, or but it's not based on science. It goes over and above. Uh, and, and this is a challenge that we have with them in terms of, of trade with the EU. Um, but there's there definitely a general consensus among the scientific community that there is no food safety issue around that. We could have done the same thing in the field in a conventional manner, but over m- many seasons, now we can be even more precise. So uh, it's in a, in a way less risky because we really know what we're doing in the laboratory. Um like we are offering more transparency than Australia, for example. So this is why um, I could say that my colleagues were very interested in in this in this approach.
3: Minister Ribel, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much.
2: This is Mornings with
3: Simi. Lots of news coming out of Vancouver City Council these days, right? You've got Gastown revitalization. You've got, you know, keeping the empty homes tax at 3% instead of raising it to 5 as had been planned. Now, that kind of makes sense, all of that does to a lot of people, right? What might not make sense? A decision last night by the ABC Majority Council to give back almost $4 million to real estate developers who own newly built homes. Like we're talking about money that had already been collected and had been earmarked for social housing. So why would we be giving this money back? Well, not everybody was in agreement with this decision. Christine Boyle certainly was not the counselor for one city, Vancouver joins us now to talk about it. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. What is this? What happened here?
1: So, you know, it, it's sort of early in the morning to be as angry as I still am about this decision. You described it really well, um, and and I I can't explain really why ABC made this decision. It's, I referred to it yesterday as sort of Robin Hood in reverse. It's taking money earmarked for social housing, $3.8 million uh, from the 2002 tax year. 2.4 million of it has already been collected uh, and giving it back to folks who have empty homes sitting around. Um, I think it, it is ludicrous and, and absolutely unjust and really a, a failure of leadership in the housing crisis where people, as you know, are struggling to pay for housing, to pay... Their grocery bills. Uh, you know, we're in a really challenging time for for residents in Vancouver, and um, to be literally writing checks back uh, to some of the wealthiest and and most well connected folks in the city uh, is abhorrent. Okay, so in my opinion, who, that's a strong <laughs> word, abhorrent. Who
3: who qualifies for this money? Then, like, are we talking developers?
1: Yeah, so like you said, the, there were a number of decisions made yesterday. Um one of the recommendations on the table was to exempt um vacant new homes until they're sold. And I have mixed feelings about that in in general. Um you know, my my sense is that if a place isn't selling, you lower the price to sell it and that that's good for customers that's good for young families looking to uh get into the housing market um but the argument that council has been hearing uh, is that the condo market in particular has softened and things aren't selling for as much as expected and um so we were being asked by, by the industry to exempt new vacant condos in particular. Okay, so um,
3: the I just want to ask a question here, sorry. But like, yeah. You're talking about buildings where stuff is on the market, and if the market is working the way the market should, then they should lower their prices until people buy that
1: product. I mean, that's my understanding of how it works, yeah. So, So there was an option on the table to exempt new vacant homes for a year. So maybe that gives some flexibility. You know, uh, is that the compromise? I could live with that. Sure. Um, The the proposal that ABC passed instead was to exempt them indefinitely into the future so they could be held and sit empty, you know, for as long as... It takes for the prices to go back up. It takes until the prices go back up. And like you said, not just that, but also one year retroactively so so um taxes that have already been paid we would give back um and and not in a small amount to the tune of uh, you know 2.4 million that we've already collected and a total of 3.8 that we would collect if if this decision hadn't been made
3: okay and so you were saying listen you were willing to compromise at some point you were willing to give them a year this doesn't give them a year. This not only gives them more than that, it also gives it to them retroactively.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And there was very little explanation from ABC, particularly to justify why we would make this decision retroactively. Uh, We have heard many times that there, well, of course, for the huge need for for non-market housing um, but particularly from the community housing sector from nonprofits and co-ops that because of the financial situation uh, everyone is in there are funding gaps on many of their projects so there are a lot of new non-market homes that are permitted ready to go but the projects have a financial gap that they need help to cover Um, and the revenue from the empty homes tax is allocated towards grants that do just that 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 uh, that help fund non market housing to cover those gaps or to deepen the affordability of new non market housing you know the goal of the empty homes tax isn't revenue it 's to bring empty homes back onto the rental market, but over the course of its life it has generated one hundred and fifteen million dollars and that funding has made really important differences in getting new non-profit and co-op housing built and deepening the affordability of that housing so this this is real money that is accomplishing good and important things to address the the really most affordable end of housing in our housing crisis and and instead we're we're just giving it back
3: yeah this Uh, this one gets me uh listen Boyle, thank you for your time this morning
1: Anytime. Thanks for having me on. That's
3: Christine Boyle, counselor for One City Vancouver. So essentially, the ABC majority council voting to take away any incentive that developers of you know buildings and things would have to get a unit moving, cut the price, get it sold, because uh, otherwise we're going to have to pay the empty homes tax. Well, that that's gone. Not only is that gone, they gave the money back to them uh, from the past year, so it gave them millions of dollars. Back. So, where is the incentive then to lower the price so that you could actually get into and potentially afford a unit there, right? This one doesn't make any sense to me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, days now since a damning report came out about BC Housing and its relationship with nonprofit housing provider Atira, and still no response from that organization. The CEO of Atira, Janice Abbott, has certainly fielded a lot of media requests, but has remained silent. Now, the board of ATIRA says they've done nothing wrong. They don't think a change in leadership is needed. Now, this is despite knowing that the organization was circumventing B.C. housing rules to get money and using money not the way it was supposed to be used. The provincial government has said they believe change is needed. But is there any power to make any of that change happen? And if there is, will they use it? Well, joining us now to give us an update on the situation is Ravi Kailan, B.C.'s Minister of Housing. Thank you for joining us.
4: Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me.
3: Are you disappointed with what you've heard so far from Atira?
4: Well, I'm disappointed that they're not taking uh, the report as uh, serious as certainly we are and as as the public would like them to. Uh, You know, the response that came from their CEO that she hadn't read the report yet was uh, just um, shocking, uh, given that this is huge and that they've had it for, you know, over three weeks already.
3: Okay, so what are the next steps? Like, what can the government do here?
4: Well, we've already started the next steps. Uh, we laid out to them in, in writing uh, what the next steps would be, which is uh, in, individual inspections on every one of their sites has uh, already begun. Uh, no new funding will go to them. And, in fact, uh, we'll be auditing uh, their uh, operations to ensure that every penny that we've given to them has been spent at the and, and gone to the right places that we're supposed to go to. And so all those things are going to happen. Uh, and uh, we made that clear to them.
3: Okay, but what if what if there's still no adequate response then? Does that relationship just stay like that? Like they just don't get anything new and that's it?
4: Uh, well, uh, you know, when their contracts come up for renewal, uh, then we'll be looking at seeing what other providers can step up and, and fill that space. Uh, but the, the challenge we have is We want to make sure that, uh, obviously, uh, every dollar is spent in the right way. That's what the audit will do. But we want to ensure also that the people they're serving, the most vulnerable, have the supports they need. And if we can find other not-for-profits that can come into that space, that's what we'll be doing.
3: So will the government be putting uh, like a government appointee on a board as requested?
4: Well, we have requested it. They are arm's length away, so we have requested that they allow... Uh, one uh, representative, so that we can see uh, what actions they're taking. Um, my hope is they take us up on that, but really my belief is that uh, they need some change uh, on the leadership front, uh, and that's what we'll be pushing them on.
3: Okay, and so they've had no like further communication, not even with the government on this?
4: Uh, I'm not aware uh, directly of what any communication they may have had since the report came out. Uh, most of their communication would be uh, with the chair of BC Housing, uh, and so my understanding is that uh, a letter was sent to them. They had replied uh, in a letter, uh, but beyond that, I'm not sure.
3: Okay, and what is the deal with this third report into B.C. housing that was mentioned yesterday? Like, how many reports have been done here?
4: Well, and that's not uh, any breaking news. The Premier said that in question period last year that he had a preliminary report from uh, the Office of the controller General. But uh, the Office of the controller General himself said, hey, listen, uh, this hasn't been done at a forensic level. Uh, We don't have the uh, evidence at this point to directly point at any individual. And releasing that information would open up the province for huge liability. And so at that point, the Premier said, okay, this needs to be done in a way that can be defendable. And that's where the forensic audit uh, started uh, from that preliminary report. So it was uh, was, uh, a preliminary in that sense. And and uh, and the forensic audit obviously has all the details uh, with uh, supporting evidence.
3: So, does this mean, Like, does this make you want to kind of rethink the relationship here with the nonprofit sector? Like, will there be more rules put in place? Are you essentially looking at other relationships?
4: Well, the the EOI report, uh, the first one, actually looked at the DC housing as a whole, and the only place they found discrepancies was here between the former CEO and, of course, um, the, uh, the CEO of Atera, uh breaking conflict of interest rules. So that's why the investigation, the Friends forensic investigation, happened the way it did. There was no other findings of any other not-for-profits. And I think it's important to point at this point, our not-for-profit sector does amazing work, working with some of the most vulnerable people, uh, and we really, really value their partnership. Uh, and at this point, nothing has been now. Uh, One of the recommendations from EY was to put better financial oversight measures for for all the not-for-profits and we've been meeting with them for the last few months saying, okay, how do we do that? How do we ensure that we have systems to make it easier for them to provide more um, uh, uh, um, often uh, data to us about how their operations are running and and we're going to have that by spring this uh, coming year.
3: Okay, so there will be like a new set of rules under which everyone will operate.
4: Yeah, I think that uh, is, uh, you know, the, the suggestion that came from UI. That's a good one. I think that, uh, it's important for us to continue to uh, evolve, make sure that we're using best practices. And uh, and I think that will make the organization even better.
3: Okay. What about getting money back from Atira? I know there was a couple of million dollars where BC Housing said, we don't like the way you spent this money. That's not what we intended. and We would like it back. What What, are, what is the ability to get money back from them?
4: Well, uh, you're correct. It was uh, $1.9 million that was given for one purpose, but according to the report, was used for a different purpose. And so uh, what we have said to them is we we are going to get that money back. Uh, They uh, say that... uh, Someone, some staff person told them they could use it for different purposes. Uh, but that is not the, the uh, legal understanding for BC Housing. So uh, we are taking steps right now. They're reviewing all their options, and, and we will get that money back for the, the taxpayers.
3: Okay, and what do you say as well, Minister, to, to British Columbians who are reading about this story, obviously, and they're going, like, what is really going on? How did we get into this mess?
4: Well, we got into this because when the Premier became the Minister responsible for housing, he saw something that was happening that was inappropriate. And, uh, and so within three months, he had a uh, EY come in and uh, they did a preliminary report. They found additional information and said, hey, this requires further investigation. And that's the report we have in front of us. And, you know, the premier has got a history of coming in and seeing something wrong and taking action. And that's that's what's happened. And, you know, I think it's fair for people to say, if this has been an issue that's been raised uh, since 2012, why did it take for now? For something to get done, and I and that one's a tough one to answer. We know there's media reports about this issue in 2012. Uh, Global actually broke a story that uh, in 2015 the previous government was handed a report saying there are some serious things happening here. You must do something. Nothing happened, and uh, and here we are in 2023. Now the good news is uh, it's exposed. Uh, we made the report public, uh, and with that comes recommendations. Uh, and and now we can, uh, you know, take on those recommendations and move forward in a good way.
3: All right. Well, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me, Simi. Stay safe.
3: This is Mornings with Simmy. Let's talk about policing in our communities. And this time it's about something a little bit different here. So the township of Langley uh, says they would like to think about establishing its own police detachment. The mayor there says that's what residents want to see. They want to see improved policing in the township. Thing is, they share policing with the city of Langley right next door but the township feels it's paying more and not getting enough back. So it has voted in favor of having its own RCMP detachment. So how does the city of Langley feel about that? Well, joining us now to talk about that is the mayor of the city of Langley, Nathan Pahal. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. So did you know this is how the township was feeling?
5: Yeah. um, When I talked to Mayor Woodward right after the election, this was the first thing he brought up to me to let me know that they were thinking about this.
3: Okay. And what is your reaction to that?
5: I think if we're looking at how we provide policing in Langley, the quickest way is to the contract that we have with the joint detachment. Working through that, you can get some quick results right now. If you go through the deintegration process, what we've seen in Pitt Meadows, and I know it's different, but we look at sort of what's happening with Surrey. Uh, these things take years and years and years and years. Uh, and so, you know, you're not going to see any meaningful change until, you know, the next election cycle, if not further down the road.
3: Okay, so is the city of Langley happy with how it is being policed?
5: I think, you know, we're having that broad discussion around, you know, policing and how we can shift resources around. I think mean, from the statistics, uh, we have uh, 585 residents to one RCMP member as far as what we have in the contract. And the township, they have one RCMP member for every 1,170 residents of their community. Uh, So we're definitely, you know, paying for uh, our fair share of policing. What we're really trying to look at in Langley City is some of the root causes that cause community safety challenges. So, you know, how we address homelessness and poverty and addiction. So we're doing a lot of work around that so we can divert calls from police to mental health and social supports because we believe that if we can solve some of these systemic upstream challenges that will free up policing resources to focus on policing because we know we have a challenge with you know not being able to fill policing throughout British Columbia.
3: So do you still think though the best idea is for the two to stay integrated in terms of policing?
5: Yeah, integration makes the most amount of sense. I mean, there's a reason why we have one homicide team for Metro Vancouver, while we have one crime reconstruction team for Metro Vancouver. Integration, when it comes to policing, which is very technical, uh, gives us those economies of scale. I mean, the thing I always bring up is we have a shopping mall, Willowbrook Shopping Centre. A third of it's in the city, two-thirds of it is in the township. If someone calls 911, are we going to get a township RCMP and a city RCMP showing up?
3: Right. So do people understand that, though? Because it just feels like right now with policing such a hot button topic, what they want is to they want to see more police.
5: Yeah. And I think we don't get there by, you know, setting up separate detachments. We know that there is a crisis when it comes to the amount of people that we can recruit. Uh, That's a problem throughout B.C., throughout Canada. So if we do split into two detachments or um, you know start our own police service, which we're not considering doing, that means that there's going to be more overhead, which means we're going to have to have even more people to do the same job. So that's just going to exacerbate the challenges with uh, the gap in policing and the ability to recruit RCMP members in Metro Vancouver.
3: Okay, so what are the next steps here? Like, what, what do you think should happen now?
5: Yeah, I mean, this is a, a prescribed process, so... It is um, reports that have to be put together by the township. We obviously are going to fully participate in this. There's reports we have to do, have to prove out that a transition plan makes sense and that is viable. The province has to look at it. They'll have questions. They'll be back and forth. They'll have to approve it at some point. Once it's approved, then we have to go through the process of actually how all this works you know, we're probably going to have to build a new detachment if it actually gets to that point in the city. That will take four, five, six years to build. Once all of that's done, then the actual process of having two detachments starts. So, you know, this could very well take a decade.
3: You know, you just illustrated right there about why I think we, we shy away from having these discussions, right? Because nothing does happen overnight, does it?
5: No, it doesn't. And, you know, the the quickest way, I think, to get things done is within some of the existing structures. So, again, we have a um, contract that we signed um, in 2007 that we've been renewing every five years with the township. If it truly is about, you know, making sure that there's more resources for the township, that's something that I'd be really happy to sit down and have a conversation with uh, Mayor Woodward for, because we are, you know, neighbors and we want to be great neighbors. And, of course, we wouldn't do anything to prevent the township from getting, you know, the number of police that they'd like to see. It just makes sense.
3: Right. I guess the other question here, too, is like from what it sounds like from the way you're describing it, the issues facing the city of Langley, the township of Langley are similar to what you would find in in Vancouver or in in Surrey uh, in dealing with mental health issues, in dealing with homelessness like it just feels like it is everywhere.
5: Absolutely. Uh, it is, uh, whether you're in Kelowna or Surrey or Vancouver or on the island, we're all dealing with the same challenges. And that's why we're trying to look at the upstream approaches as well. So you you may not know, but one of the discussions happening within BC is when you call 911, we want to have a option for mental health. So these are sorts of the ways that we're trying to, you know, fully empower the police to be able to focus on core policing and divert some of those calls that police are responding to because they're literally the only people who can uh, to the the people that would be having the right resources and skills to really help folks.
3: Okay, so that would be interesting. So you called 911 and it's fire, police, ambulance, or mental health help? Correct. That would, that would make a big difference, wouldn't you say?
5: Oh, 100%, and that's something I fully support, and I know this is work that's going on right now.
3: Interesting one. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time.
5: Yeah. Have a great day.
3: You too. That is the mayor of the city of Langley, Nathan Pahal, talking about the relationship with the Township of Langley. So they have shared policing with a shared RCMP detachment for, I think it's 30 years. I think they started doing this in 1993. And the township is not happy about this. They feel they don't get the same level of policing in terms of the number of officers available to the township. And they are thinking about and they have voted to explore the idea of having their own RCMP detachment. As you heard the mayor of the city of Langley say, though, that's a process. And and within the agreement that they have, they can work all that out. But clearly, it also tells us how much policing is on the minds of residents. Langley Township says that's that's like the number one thing that residents there talk about, policing issues. So it is happening everywhere. And I wonder, like, is there a community out there? I know Delta residents, you're going to say you probably feel pretty good about this because I hear from Delta residents. But is there a community out there that does feel pretty good about the level of policing you receive let me know simi at cknw.com and i said that shout out to delta residents because i do i do hear from delta residents who are quite happy with the delta police department this is mornings with simi I could go for some pizza right now, which is probably a good thing that we're talking about pizza. Definitely going to have to have some for dinner, I think. And if you love pizza, well, some good news. Because you know what? There's lots of people who talk about it, study it, try to make it better. People who love it as a craft. And the first Canadian edition of something called Women in Pizza is coming to town. So what is this all about? One of the panel moderators of Women in Pizza is Stephanie Swain, the publisher and editorial director of Modernist Cuisine, who joins us now. Good morning, Stephanie.
6: Good morning, Simi. Thank you so much
3: for having me today. Well, thank you for joining us. What is Women in Pizza all about?
6: So Women in Pizza was founded by Alexander Mortati, and um, it is really... a uh, great way for women to be focused within the pizza industry, which is predominantly male, but um, to shine their creativity and inspire other women to make pizza.
3: So how challenging is it then? You talk about how it's predominantly male. Is it it tough for women to get into the business?
6: Well, um, the wonderful thing with pizza is that a lot of women, especially during the time during the pandemic actually started uh, pop-ups as well as baking pizza out of their home and and selling it to their neighbors and eventually creating their own small businesses. So um, there's no difficulty than any other types of food. Um, It's just a lot of women have decided to kind of continue to grow in this specific area.
3: Now, is there ways in which the industry is helping with that?
6: Definitely. I think there are, we have a lot of allies in the pizza world, um, other men who have really pushed women forward in the limelight um, that have um, created a, a level platform for women to compete. And um, there are also just some amazing women that have been in the industry for decades now that are getting the recognition that they should receive.
3: I absolutely love this because you feel like, okay, yeah, pizza feels to me like the great equalizer because everybody loves pizza, don't they?
6: Um, The wonderful thing about pizza is you can travel all over the world and still ask for pizza and everyone knows what that is.
3: That is very true. So what is key here? Do you think like when, when you're looking at this particular issue, what has made the difference in getting women involved?
6: Uh, I think uh, programs like yourself, um, writers and publishers like myself is, you know, media embracing and looking at promoting women within the field. I think that's a great step forward. Um, I think that women that have been in the field have have done a wonderful job mentoring um, new women that are starting out uh, and really um, sharing their knowledge and helping them as with the struggles that they might have had um, in the past.
3: Have you seen things change over time?
6: Definitely. I I have been um, in the pizza world for the last eight plus years and when I started researching for Modernist Pizza about eight years ago, um, there were very few women competing, there were very few women um, running demos and lectures at events, Um, there were no women in pizza. Um, and so it's great to be able to be present now and also have the opportunity to share and um, have more and more women understand that, you know, there are these great women out there doing, you know, raising a family, creating a business, and, um, and competing all over the world. Okay, if you've been in the pizza world, as you say,
3: for eight years, I have to ask you, what do you think makes a good pizza?
6: Oh, that's such a tough question. Because, um, you know, I think it's all about the dough. First of all, if anyone asks me a question, it's all about the dough. I think that the dough is the plate, which you put all of the toppings on. So if the dough isn't fantastic, then you're already struggling. Okay, but do you like that
3: whole like Napolitana pizza? Or do you like the more traditional crust pizza? Like, what do you love?
6: So I love all pizzas, including you know a slice at a chain restaurant. Um, you know I, I think that there's a time and a place for all types of pizza, but my favorite right now is um, pan style pizzas. So Detroit style pizza is one of my favorites. Um, I love a Napolitana pizza. Um, you know it, it really depends on my mood, but I I don't judge. I think that all pizzas are delicious.
3: And isn't it amazing? You talked about the Detroit style pizza, because there's like Detroit pizza, there's a New York pizza, there's Chicago pizza, there's Napolitana pizza. Every region seems to come up with its own kind of type of pizza.
6: There are. I mean, there, there are definitely styles throughout the world. I mean, there are styles that are originating from um, Brazil, for example, which aren't as uh, f- as common as, uh, you know, a Napolitana Um, But, you know, these styles all have a common thread, which is enjoying pizza and sharing pizza with other people. And I think that's, you know, the other beautiful thing about pizza.
3: Okay, now, Stephanie, for people who don't know, how how do you classify a Detroit style
6: pizza? So Detroit style pizza is baked in a um, carbonized steel pan, and it is a thicker crust, Um, and the one of the differences with Detroit style pizza is that. There is what they call Frico, which is around the edge of the pizza, um, and it's a beautiful lacing of cheese. Um, So if you love cheese, this is the pizza for you, because you not only add this brick cheese around the layer around the edge of the pizza, which then it gives you this kind of beautiful blackened, crunchy, I think of it like the lasagna noodles, um, with the extra extra, um, crispiness. And then you put uh, cheese on top and so the sauce is actually race car striped as they would say across the top so this sauce is not baked when you make a pizza. Okay I am sold. It's put on
3: afterwards. Oh my goodness I am sold I'm even looking at pictures right now going why have I never had this before so do you think this is like the next big thing?
6: I definitely think that Detroit style pizza has continued to rise amongst other um, traditional styles. Uh, and I think that it's getting better and better too. You know, people just like all types of pizza. The more people that embrace a new style, the better it gets because people start to customize it. The dough gets better, um, the toppings get better. You know, putting fresh ricotta on top of a Detroit-style pizza, absolutely delicious. Putting a little Mike's hot honey drizzled on top, on top of the ricotta, another layer of deliciousness. Um, so all of these things, I think, make a fact make the factors of uplifting the style that might have existed for a while.
3: Well, now I'm sold and I'm going to have to look up some recipes and try to make this on my own. But Stephanie, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi. And I hope you enjoy your next
6: slice of pizza. And it's very soon.
3: I hope so, too. Thank you for that. That is Stephanie Swain, publisher and editorial director of Modernist Cuisine. And Stephanie will also be on the panel, actually, that's going to be talking about women in pizza. It's a moderator, it's a women in pizza uh, event that's coming to town. That's uh, actually going to be a pretty good one. They're talking about, it's like a bakery food expo that's happening in the city. And women in pizza is one of the panels that is happening there. And I'm sold. I would like to try Detroit style pizza. Now I'm going to have to try to figure this out somewhere. And if you know a place I can get it, let me know. Simi at CKNW.com.